everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl is not with me today. He will be back with me in studio tomorrow to do some listener questions. We're going to also talk She Believes Cup. We've got a lot of things going on, uh, but for now, we've got two different conversations, one slightly longer than the other. The first is U.S. Men's National Team coach Greg Berhalter. Uh, I spoke with him in New York last week uh, at the kickoff event for MLS 25, the 25th anniversary. Uh, We had about four and a half minutes, four minutes, 45 seconds to be precise. Uh, of hopefully audio goodness. We get into sort of his thoughts on the way the team is discussed, as well as how he kind of explains things tactically to his players, and then some of the most tactically adept players. It's a lot of tactics, not surprising. After that, you're going to be hearing from Graham Ruthven. Uh, Graham has been on the show several times to talk La Liga. He's going to be doing that again, this time specifically to talk El Clasico. Ryan and I talked a little bit about it on Monday's uh, Weekend Review show. Graham and I uh, delve even deeper in, into uh, what happened, what the tactics were, why they weren't so attractive, why Vinicius Jr. can be frustrating but is also very good, uh, who may retire first between Gerard Piquet and Sergio Ramos or who might be on the move sooner. But then we also get into uh, Graham's thoughts on Major League Soccer. He covers that as well. And a little bit about uh, up-and-coming English managers. One name in there will definitely surprise. So first we're going to hear from Greg Berhalter. I should note this was recorded in a very crowded mix zone with lots of other things happening, including David Beckham talking to the press about four feet away. You can hear a lot of conversations. Hopefully you can hear Greg Berhalter. Uh, And then after that, I'll be speaking to Mr. Graham Ruthven. We've been talking a lot about the national team. I'm I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. Uh, One thing in the press conferences we've been in with you, it seems like sometimes... like the way the media is talking about the team isn't always appreciated. Going back to like the Mexico game, for yeah. example, and I'm wondering, are there ways you would prefer to hear the team talked about, or things that you think people aren't necessarily getting to the bottom of? That's a that's a great question, actually. And um, you know, I never want to make excuses for the team. I don't want us to make excuses for ourselves as players mm-hmm. or as coaches. So I can understand frustration when we don't perform up to the expectations of the fans. And and for us, it's about. Um, you know, qualifying for the World Cup. I think what I would, what I would like at times is understanding of what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I feel like there is a lack of understanding of what's, what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So, for example, that Mexico game that you alluded to is a perfect example. It's a friendly game. We're focused on building up from goalkeeper against a team that we know is going to high press. We're using every mm-hmm. opportunity we can to do that. And that was what was important for that game. Mm-hmm. That was the objective of that game. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the, the team is always going to do that or always has to do that. But we wanted to use a friendly game as an opportunity to practice something. And do you feel like that word being very key, do you feel like sometimes fans lose the idea that it is a friendly, it is meant to be more of an experimental, we're trying different things sort of approach to the game? I, I think so. But listen, there's also frustration, man. We didn't qualify for the world, last World Cup. And I can understand by every time the team performs, fans are judging if that's going to be good enough to get us back to the World Cup. So if you look at a game like Mexico where you lose 3-0, they're evaluating the game and said that's not going to be good enough to get us to the next World Cup, and I'm frustrated by that. And I can understand that. That makes sense to me. I also wanted to ask you maybe another sort of abstract question, but we hear a lot about, um, like, you know, Tyler Adams is going to be a right back. And you're like, well, not necessarily a right back. Or, like, he's going to be a number six. Well, not that. Yeah. It seems as though like the idea of where players fit on the pitch yeah. is much more fluid, is much, is much less like, oh, it's a 4-2-3-1, it fits exactly like that. How do you sort of convey what you want from a player in a specific position? Is it like you're going to be a right back but also a right winger, or is it much more just like the individual responsibilities that you're asking of the player? No, I think we have roles and responsibilities of, of each individual based on our positional game. You know, we play a positional game where 
it may be important for for Tyler to defend in the right back, but play offense as a center midfielder. You know, that's just how, you know, that's how we look at the game. That's how we see the game. Um, you know, when you look at Tyler now, actually, what he's doing for Leipzig is is similar, right? Mm-hmm. He's playing right back sometimes, right wing back sometimes. I mean. And, you know, as coaches, you also like players that give you tactical flexibility because they have diverse skill sets, and Tyler's one of those players. Final question for you. Is there a sort of cliche term that you find the most frustrating? Is it, like, the number six, the number ten? Do you tend to uh, get frustrated with any of those, get bothered by any of those, or is it just sort of uh, part and parcel of the game? Um, no, I, listen, I think that I think that there's... You know the the way we look at it is um, is we're trying to do everything we can to, to put the players in position to succeed, and we want to give them um, you know the tools and the skill set to when they're on the field to be able to compete as a team. And you know I think what you're going to see is you're going to see teams, coaches getting away from these strict labels about positions. And and you know if you think about defensive structure, when you watch Liverpool defend, for example. And if you freeze it at any given moment, there's no formation, right? It's, press, it's pressing the ball. And, and it's, there's no lines that you can see, but it's also, it looks chaotic, but it's also very difficult for the opponent because you can't break lines if you can't see lines to break. So I think there's, there's this evolution in soccer that, that is taking place where there's, it's less about strict positions. It's more about, um, I think, ball movement and moving together as a unit. Another, I lied to you. My actual final question now: uh, Are there players who you think in the pool are uh, especially adept at being able to kind of do a variety of positions, uh, perform a variety of roles on the fly yeah. in game? I think Sergio Dest is a good example of a guy who can play inside, he can play wide, can play as an attacking player, defending player. Tyler Adams is another good example. Christian Pulisic can play as a winger, can play as a number ten. Gio Reyna can be a number ten. He can be a winger. You know, Josh Sargent plays as a striker but drops down into midfield. You know, Jesus Ferrero is doing the same thing. He plays 10 with Dallas, 9 with us. So these players give you solutions. And, you know, with the more flexibility these players can have, um, you know, the better off the team will be. Joining me once again is our friend and yours, Mr. Graham Ruthven. Graham, where are you speaking to us from today? Oh, Glasgow as always. I don't, I don't get to travel much, much, and then that was before uh, coronavirus uh, cancelled all the flights. So uh, yeah, Glasgow as always. <laughs> all right, so we're we're all homebound. I am also recording from <laughs> from home today, so that's good, I guess. But we're not going to talk coronavirus. We're not going to talk elections. We're going to talk Classico, which is maybe as disappointing for some people, less disappointing for others. Um, I found myself really enjoying this El Clasico, even if it wasn't like the prettiest game of soccer, but it felt like a proper El Clasico to me with like a lot of uh, fan interaction, a lot of kind of jawing back and forth between the players, some bad blood, then some good blood. Uh, Graham, what were your sort of takeaways from this one? What were your expectations heading in? It, it, was, it's, it was the game that I expected and that these are two very flawed teams at the moment. Um, I wrote a piece before the game. This, this fixture used to be the depiction of, of strength in European mm-hmm. soccer. You know, it was, it was the two best teams in the continent. You know, you look at the Champions League winners, um, Real Madrid, they won it, what, th- uh, three times a row, four times in five years, and the other time was Barcelona. So these two teams have dominated an entire era. This season is different. This season, these two teams are at, both in kind of transition. Real Madrid, I think, have have kind of, they've been slightly ahead of Barcelona, but make no mistake, they're an inconsistent team as well. They have their problems. Barcelona 
are facing a, a little bit of an existential crisis, to be honest, that's that related to the political situation at the club with with uh, club elections on the horizon next year. And, and, and really, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tussle at, at Barcelona, at the, a power struggle at Barcelona at the moment. So this game was exactly what, uh, what I expected. Um, a poor quality match, I thought, but a, a very entertaining one nonetheless, and, and one that has that had real bearing on it. I mean, it's been a, a little while since we've had a classical at this stage of the season, which has had real meaning in terms of the, the Spanish title race, because, of course, Barcelona normally by this stage are, are, are kind of stretching their legs at, at the top of La Liga and it's been a while since we've had a, a real title race and, and so this match it, it really felt like there was a lot on it. Um, I, I genuinely don't mean this question as a way of saying like predict what's going to happen but uh, it's a big but there like, I, we were talking about it on the weekend review and my argument was essentially that this felt like we've been hearing that Madrid are bringing in all these young players that they seem to have kind of a more stable transfer policy at least for Real Madrid they've got Zidane who seems pretty stable as well you contrast that with Barcelona a lot of the questions that are asked there and it felt to me like this could be a tipping point both for this season and maybe a little bit beyond do you feel like that could be the case or do you feel like we may as well we might equally just see Barcelona win this weekend, Madrid drop points, and suddenly we're right back talking about the title race. I think I think that latter option is is, is very likely. I, okay. I don't think Real Madrid um, they will drop points between now and the end of the season. They'll drop lots of points between now and the end of the season. What you're you're betting on if you're Real Madrid is that Barcelona will drop more, and I think I think that is that's likely. If you were to pick, ask me to pick. One of the two teams now to, to win La Liga, I think Real Madrid, and I've thought Real Madrid for, for a little while. They just have, um, with Zidane, it's something intangible. It's, they just they, they know how to get over the line a little bit more, even when they play poorly. And make no mistake, Real Madrid have played poorly a lot this season. The number of games where they've actually played well is is probably less than Barcelona, actually. When Barcelona play well, they tend to win you know 3-4-0. Um, but they struggle to kind of grind out results and Real Madrid have that. And even if they're 1-0 down and going into the last 10 minutes, you feel Real Madrid just have something about them that they'll find they'll find two goals. And we saw that in the classical a little bit, maybe not to that extent, but Real Madrid had, a, I think, a poor first half. Barcelona were probably the better side in the first half, had the better chances. But you still felt like going into that second half that Real Madrid would have that little bit extra. And that's exactly what happened. They kind of pushed up the gears a little bit. And, and a lot of it is, this is going to sound like a cop-out and, and the stati- statisticians and the, and the analysts will uh, probably cringe at this. But a lot of it with Real Madrid comes down to spirit, I think. I think they just have a, a slightly better spirit than Barcelona at the moment. But having said that, as I say, this, this season um, in Spain has been nuts so far and I don't expect that to, to change anytime soon. I think there will be many twists and turns between now and May. I don't know if this is what you meant, but like how I heard it when you said spirit is essentially that maybe Madrid have bought into Zidane a little bit more, or Zidane has the backing of the uh, of the team a little bit more than maybe Kike Setien has at Barcelona right now. Is that the case, or or is it something else entirely? No, I think that's I think that's probably fair. I think with Setien, um, the players at Barcelona probably respect him and, and and what he's trying to do. He seems to have the backing of. Um, you know, senior figures in that dressing room, like Gerard Pique in particular, seems to be a, a, a big fan. Messi, you, you you don't really hear much from Messi, and we 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 were hearing that he he was actually quite disappointed that Valverde was sacked in the first place. But there's been no grumblings that he's unhappy with Setien. But as is natural with a new manager, he he hasn't quite earned the trust of the, of those players, and because Zidane obviously had that very successful 
um, first spell at, at Real Madrid as manager. He came back, and a lot of the players knew him already. knew he's a winner, and also Zidane is, is Zidane. You know, he's he's one of the greatest players of his generation. He instantly commands that respect. Players want to do well for him because he is Zinedine Zidane, and as good a coach as Kiki Setien is, this is a guy who has never held a job. Um, this illustrious, he's never been at this level. You know, it's a guy whose biggest achievement in management is is taking Real Betis to sixth place in, in La Liga. So he doesn't have that that natural aura, and 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 maybe it is as simple as that. You know, I, I, there's not much between the two teams in terms of players. I think they're pretty well matched um, from front to back, left to right. They they really are quite similar. And and maybe it is just down to the the, the manager in this case, Dan having having a little bit more about him. I think that makes that makes sense to me, especially because uh, I have never been to the Santiago uh, Bernabeu, but I'm assuming it's a fairly intimidating uh, atmosphere, especially if the fan is either very much against you or very much for you. And I do wonder if maybe that gives Zidane that extra level of confidence that he's been there, he's heard them screaming, he's heard them very, very angry, and I do wonder if maybe that has less of an impact on him than it might uh, other managers who aren't maybe as familiar with how intimidating that sort of fortress can be. Mm-hmm, exactly, and that was something that uh, Lopetegui um, struggled with when he was uh, when he was Real Madrid manager. He, he he was not used to that environment. I have been to a Clasico at the Bernabeu, and and let me tell you, when it's uh, when it's going well, it's fantastic to have that backing behind you. And when it's not so going so well, they almost compound the problem a little bit by uh, whistling and 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 that that. Um, that uncomfortability is, is is audible and transmits down to the players. I, I'm not sure there's a stadium in European soccer that that does that as much as the Santiago Bernabeu, which uh, is can be a help and a hindrance to the team. But Zidane, Zidane, it never really changes. You know, you, the way he speaks, you you get pretty much the same answer out of him all the time. You get pretty much the same demeanour out of him. On the touchline, he's pretty much the same person, and and, and that can be a little bit frustrating as as a writer because obviously you want you want emotion and you want yeah. something more and you, you want a little bit of a tell from him, but you don't actually really get that from Zidane. And from a player's perspective, I can see why that would be a good thing for them. So you're t- we've talked about like uh, the fan atmosphere there. We've talked about the emotion of the moment. That feels like a good time to talk about Vinicius, um, mm-hmm. who, uh, from what I heard from the commentators, uh, maybe started to get a few boos there in the second half just prior to scoring uh, a goal, uh, which surprised me because I, I think maybe this is an example of I like saw him do a couple things pretty well, and then in my mind he was having a really good game. So that seemed totally foreign to me that they were booing him. It felt like, oh, he's just the new Bale. He's the source of their frustration. Then you look at the, st- the statistics, it kind of bears out that he was not having a very good game. Your piece that you wrote about how he can be very frustrating uh, maybe also indicates that as well. What did you make of his performance in this game? Uh, why should Madrid's fans maybe not be so concerned about him? And what does he need to do to make sure that he doesn't end up getting whistled again? Mm-hmm. I think I think Vinicius he he might not have been the best player on the pitch in the classical, but he was certainly the most important player. He was the player that um, the Real Madrid players were looking to 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 do something. He was the difference maker. He was the one stretching the pitch. He was the one making things happen. And I think that is quite telling. I think the Real Madrid dressing room and Zidane have trust in Vinicius. You know they they do give him the ball a lot. They they expect him to do something with it. He's a frustrating player to watch. I mean, I've got no skin in the game and, and I find him frustrating to watch. So I can't imagine if you're a Real Madrid fan how, how they would feel. He he has a knack for passing when he should shoot. He has a, a knack for shooting when he should pass. But it, it, the, he's got something about him. And I think those flaws are worth tolerating for 
he will come up with the moment that decides a game. And we saw that, obviously, against Barcelona. It was his goal, albeit a deflected one of, of, of Gerard Piquet. But he was the one who made who made that goal happen. He was the one who drove into the box. And, and really, Real Madrid don't have another player like him. I mean, Rodrigo has broke through this season and is quite similar in more than one way, with Vinicius obviously being a, a, another Brazilian teenager. But I think Vinicius, he, he's a live wire. He's electricity. He, he lights up the place. And, and I have to say... I do, um, you, know, you know, when you were talking about him being maybe another bail, I, I would maybe counter that with, um, I actually think the reaction of the Bernabeu crowd to Vinicius is, is very different to the one that Gareth Bale gets. I think that you're right, there were some, there, there was a bit of frustration coming to the boil in that second half when he was maybe making the wrong decision, but he does always, he does get a lot more patience than than any other player at Real Madrid, I think, and and, and that's quite rare from the Bernabeu crowd. I mean, I wonder what Gareth Bale thinks when when he sees Vinicius, you know, um, send his fifth cross of the game behind for a goal kick, and you know, <laughs> Gareth Bale will get booed for hitting the bar with an overhead kick from thirty yards. I mean, I want, I do wonder what goes through his mind a little bit. But I, I think people do understand this is a this is a kid that's nineteen years old still. Um, he's incredibly raw. He's got all the talent in the world. He needs a hell of a lot of refinement over the next few years. I mean, he he really needs to refine his game. But there is a player there and there's a player that makes things happen. And that's what he did against Barcelona. So he's worth he's worth persevering with. All those flaws are worth tolerating at the moment. I think almost literally everything you just said, uh, with the exception of, I think, Frankie de Jong is 22, not 19, does feel like it also applies to Frankie de Jong in that very promising, very exciting player who, I don't watch Barcelona probably as much as you do, uh, or certainly as much as you do, as much as a lot of people do, uh, and whenever I do, I'm like, oh yeah, Frankie de Jong, he's good, he's like keeping the ball moving, he feels like he fits with the Barcelona style, but as you watch them more, it feels like there are some moments when maybe they haven't quite figured out how to properly like uh, get him into the squad to fully integrate him in a way that sort of suits his game and also facilitates what Barcelona want to do. Uh, I know you wrote about his performance for Barca as well, so I wanted to hear your thoughts on De Jong, both currently and maybe, again, sort of what needs to happen for him to look a bit more fluid in that starting eleven. Yeah, it's purely down to his his role in this Barcelona team. When he signed from Ajax, I'm I'm, I'm sure you thought as as I did. I mean, he's he's a, he's a perfect Barcelona player. Yeah. I mean, he's he's come from Ajax. He's been educated in the ways of Johan Cruyff. He's good with the ball. You know, he's young. He even looks like a Barcelona player. You know, that <laughs> he looks very very Dutch. Um, and and so you thought that he would he would slot in seamlessly at Barcelona. And in a way, he has. I mean, when you watch him, he, he is very technically able. The players trust him. He's, he's got the trust of his teammates. But it's, it's just about that role that he's playing in that team. I mean, really, he was signed, he was signed to be the Busquets um, successor. The problem with that, of course, is that Barcelona are not ready to, to bench Sergio Busquets, at least not for the biggest games against you know, Real Madrid and in the Champions League. So then you've got this issue of, well, we can't really bench Frankie de Jong either because he, he's too good to be on the bench as well. So you try and fit him in as, as a number eight. And, and I just don't think it's a role that he's particularly suited to. And I mean, and he contradicts this himself. I mean, he had, a, he had a recent interview where he explained how he feels he's best when he, when he has freedom to drive towards goal. And, and I don't know whether he was just saying that so, so not to rock the boat because that's the role he has been played in at, at the moment. But I don't. I don't really get that. I think at Ajax. He was very much the the pace setter of that Ajax team. He would drop in between the centre backs. He would. He would. 
he didn't actually get many assists or, or, or even pre-assists for that Ajax team, but he was the one that set the tempo of that Ajax team that made it to the semi-finals of the Champions League last season. And and he doesn't have that same role at Barcelona. I mean, that role is filled by Sergio Busquets. And and so Kiki Setien is using him in a, in a very unusual way. He's 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 using him almost as a false nine yeah, in, in, yeah, in, in so some weird. instances. Um, he's Sometimes he's using Vidal in that position as well, but there was a game... There was a game against uh, Real Betis um, a few weeks ago, which Barcelona actually won 3-2. It was, a, it was a decent performance, but Frankie de Jong was using the false nine position. He actually scored by making this, this late run beyond Lionel Messi and picking up a pass and, and, and scoring. And, and even though he did score in that game, it, it's just very strange to see him in, in that position. And it just underlines this fact that, that Barcelona, particularly with Luis Suarez out at the moment with injury... Um, they they don't have anyone to play in, in that in that centre forward role. I mean, obviously they've got Martin Martin Brathwaite now, which is uh, you know a whole other discussion that that signing. But um, in terms of a top tier player to to really play that role beyond Lionel Messi, they they don't really have anyone at the moment. And and De Jong is is maybe the best, and Vidal are the, are the best options that they have. But it's it's really not making the most of a player who, for any other team in Europe, and I, and I do mean that for any other team in Europe, he would be the pace setter at the base of the midfield. And, and, and it's just it just seems a little bit wasteful at the moment. Yeah, agreed entirely. I, I do have a question. Maybe maybe I'll stay away from Braithwaite because it's probably just going to make me uh, frustrated. But I did notice uh, in this game the, <laughs> the really good chance that Messi has where he brings it down, he shoots, and it's a good stay, uh, save from Courtois in the first half. Uh, that comes about uh, from what I saw from Frankie de Jong drifting into that false nine spot. But then I think he's literally told by Lionel Messi to vacate that space. He does, and then it opens up for Messi. So even then it's like, oh, he's doing the false nine thing, and that's interesting. But also he's literally being told what to do as opposed to sort of knowing yeah. instinctively, which I think is fairly representative of the uh, the growing pains he's experiencing there. And then I think you've also kind of hit on my frustration with that Braithwaite move. I know I'm not alone in being frustrated by that, but the idea that they reinforced out of the, the transfer window for a player to, I guess, replace Suarez, and then simultaneously we're discussing them as though they haven't been able to replace Suarez. It's just a, a strange situation that could lead to relegation for one team and maybe a, a player getting a few minutes for Barcelona for the other. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an utterly that was an utterly shameful transfer, and I, I tweeted at the time. I struggled to think of of a, of a more shameful transfer in in European soccer yeah. history. Um, the way that the Barcelona, I mean, no one knew that rule existed. I mean, when that when that was yeah, first reported, um, you know, very experienced reporters, people who are more experienced than me, that that know the the ins and out of, of, of Spanish uh, football constitution. No one knew that rule existed. Um, it had never really been exercised before. And, and as you say, you know, Leganes now have, have lost their top scorer for a, a battle against relegation. They have now been told that they, they cannot sign a striker, an emergency striker, in the same way Barcelona did. Explain that one to me. That That is completely um, unfair and just backs up this idea that... that had the roles been reversed, um, that Leganes or any other team in La Liga would n- would never have been able to 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 make a signing like that. And and besides anything else, you know, I I rally against this idea that Barcelona have perpetuated that they're having an injury crisis up front. I mean, they play a fo- they play three strikers or three forwards, I should I should say, when they have um, Ansu Fati, Griezmann, and Messi. Two of those are 
among the best forwards in the world. One of them is the greatest forward of all time. And the other one is probably the best teenager in world football at the moment. And I'm sorry, if, if even if you go down to one or two forwards, I don't consider that an emergency crisis. You play a 4-5-1. You make do, you make do yep. with one striker. You know, the, La Liga shouldn't account for what Barcelona's formation is. <laughs> that shouldn't factor into the, the decision-making. And, and yeah, completely shameful transfer. Martin Brathwaite, I actually think, is, is is quite a good player. People in England in particular mocked the transfer because he, he failed at Middlesbrough and was a bit of a, a flop there. And so they, they haven't really seen him play in La Liga. He's been very good in La Liga for Leganes. And I think in the, in the few minutes he was on against uh, Real Madrid, he made an impression. I mean, right before Vinicius scores, I think Brathwaite has a has a, a chance to put Barcelona ahead. I mean, he's just off off the bench. So... It, it, he he will give Barcelona an option, but that rule should never be been exercised to give Barcelona someone to come off the bench for twenty minutes at the end of games. It was just crazy to me. I agreed entirely. Although I think uh, it's a controversial take to say that Antoine Griezmann is the greatest forward of all time. I'm assuming that's who you were talking about. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. Of course. Um, my, my final question on this one: We've talked about a few different players. I want to talk about one from each time or each team, excuse me, because watching this game was the first time I had my moments of like Jared Piquet doesn't seem quite as mobile as he used to, and the same goes for Sergio Ramos. Of those two, who is more likely, do you think, to fall out of the regular first team more quickly? And will either of them, do you think, leave their respective clubs prior to retirement, or are they both retiring where they are? I would um, very strongly suggest that Sergio Ramos of those two will be the one to, to leave um, their club. I think, I think PK will probably retire at Barcelona, I think he has his sights on long term being a Barcelona club president, um, and so I think he will want to keep his links. With, he's he's very he's very diplomatic at the moment, PK, with with the political situation going on. He's not he's not gone he's not sided with with either uh, camp at the moment, and I think that suggests that he has. Um, he's already thinking about what his career at Barcelona will be after he retires. Um, Ramos. Ramos's decline this season has been quite dramatic. Um, his sending off against Manchester City was just another moment where you think this this guy is maybe losing it at, at the top level. He's out of contract, I think, at, in in next summer, summer of twenty twenty one. There was already talk about him. Um, he he handed in a transfer request. I'm getting my summers mixed up. Was it last summer or the summer before he handed in a, a transfer request? There there was that. It might be every that, summer. That, I feel like he handed in every yeah, summer. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he's 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 got it it's saved in his Google Docs, and he just sends it <laughs> off uh, at the start of June every year. But yeah, he he he's come kind of close a couple times to maybe leaving Real Madrid. There was that time Manchester United, I think, thought yeah. they had a real chance of signing him. So. I, th- I think his relationship with Perez, Florentino Perez, is, is slightly rockier, and, and I think Real Madrid are a much more brutal club when it comes to moving players on. I mean, this is the club that that sold Ica Casillas to 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 Porto because they felt he was no longer good enough. It didn't matter that he was a club legend. You know, Ronaldo. I know it was his decision, Cristiano Ronaldo, but Real Madrid still accepted the offer from Juventus to to sell him. So. If you, yeah, I think Ramos is maybe coming towards the end of his of his time at Real Madrid. I mean, the, the guy is what what he's thirty four. You know, he's had he's had a good innings. You know, he's he's had a good run, and and I think it is getting to that time. I could see him maybe going to dare I mention a, a certain Inter Miami. I, I, think, knew, I was wondering mentioned. if you're going to bring that up. I was going to be Inter Miami. <laughs> Beckham needs a pal out yeah. in uh, South Florida. 
So uh, yeah, I think I think Sergio Ramos, uh, his time at Real Madrid may be, may have an expiry date now. That's that's uh, that's awesome. I really was going to ask. Like, Inter Inter Miami seems possible, and there was the video of the LAFC fans singing to Beckham that you look lonely because he was sitting in the yeah. the box by himself. So maybe yeah. he does indeed need Sergio Ramos. There you go. Um, you you have been. We always talk about La Liga. We've talked a, a decent amount about El Clasico on the show. I did want to ask you about two other topics. One of them being Major mm-hmm. League Soccer. Uh, you you seem to follow the league, write about the league, follow it fairly closely. Um, you made some predictions. I want to get into some of those, but first I wanted to ask you. Why, like, aside from a, I'm assuming I can get paid to write about it standpoint, what is your view of Major League Soccer? Why do you find it interesting, or do you find it interesting? Yeah, of course, of course, I, I find it hugely interesting. The, the main reason is really that, on a very fundamental level, I, I'm I'm very interested in a, in a league that's basically, I mean, I know it's 25 years, and the league is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. But in relative terms, it's starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are teams like Inter Miami. Even Nashville, you know, who have come from a lower level, they're they're essentially starting from scratch and becoming a, a, an MLS franchise, and and that's really interesting. And maybe that's the 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 Scot in me, because of course our our country is is steeped in football traditions, and and that's great. And I, I love Scottish football, and and I have my my team in Scotland, Stirling Albion. For anyone uh, who's uh, wondering, we're on for the third division playoffs this season. Uh, hopefully, get promotion there, but. Um, yeah, sometimes it's 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 frustrating because the, those traditions can hold you back. I mean, and, and and really in the marketing and Scottish football, and and I get frustrated because the clubs just don't do enough. And and so MLS is interesting because it's basically like right, if you were starting a soccer league from scratch, how would you do it? And that that is basically what MLS has done, and that's that's very interesting. I think also you know the 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 football that the soccer is is. Is entertaining. I mean, MLS is, is a league that, yeah, sure, okay, the, the the quality isn't up to the Premier League or even some of the the top European leagues, but MLS is messy, and I mean that in, in the best possible way. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it is it is there are goals. The defenses, I think, aren't particularly good. Right at the moment, especially, I think a lot of the expansion teams have have almost diluted the defense because obviously an expansion yeah. team come coming in, they target the the Rodolfo uh, Pizarro's mm-hmm. and and the Carlos Velas and the and the Miguel Almirons and the, you know they they don't tend to go after defenders and because there's been so many expansion teams recently, the defenses I think have suffered. But from a an entertainment standpoint, that means the attacks are, are, are really good. The forward lines are, are really good. So, um, yeah, I'm hugely interested in MLS. Have been for a long time. Must be maybe ten years now that I've written and, and watched MLS. And uh, I don't think I'm, I'm going to stop watching it anytime soon. First off, you have really sold me on this idea that Sergio Ramos needs to go to Inter Miami because you're absolutely <laughs> right about the defenses, and I have to believe he would make them uh, slightly stronger. If, if even though he'd be somewhat frustrated, I think early on, and even that would be pretty uh, exciting to watch. In those ten years for you, though, are there teams that have uh, stood out more than others? Are there teams that you tend to follow, or is it more of a because you're kind of I'm assuming picking games, w- staying up late to watch them? Are you watching the more sort of exciting headline grabby games, or are there smaller teams mm-hmm. that you tend to kind of also keep an eye on? Yeah, I don't have a a team in MLS. Um, I, I did have a team in the NESL. I was I was a Cosmos fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know they're still sticking around, but I, I think with the, the turmoil that league is in at the moment, it's a little bit harder to, to follow. Um, but uh, no, I don't have a team that I follow specifically. I mean, in recent years, it's 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 impossible to ignore the 
the Atlanta Uniteds and, and the LFC, LAFCs. I mean, you, you watch those games and you get a sense that it's a really big occasion and that, and that naturally draws your attention, I think. If, if there's 70,000 fans at, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium or, or you know, the, the, the 32-52 behind the goal at LAFC, I mean, that just that just heightens the whole spectacle and, and, and grabs your attention. Um, I... Went to a couple. I went to Orlando's first ever. Well, it was also NYCFC's first game as well um, at the Citrus Bowl. I went to that, and so I, I kind of had a. I kind of looked out for Orlando's results for for a little while, but they they've been a bit t- t- tough to tolerate recently. <laughs> so I, I stopped doing that for my own health. Um, but no, I, re- I really don't have a team. I, I I must say, the one team that I really don't enjoy watching, and this has nothing to do with the product that they put on the pitch, because they actually have a very good team at the moment and have done for, for a couple of years now is NYCFC and that's purely because of where they play. I, I frankly think that's an embarrassment that they continue to play at Yankee Stadium. I've written pieces about that. NYCFC themselves know how I feel. I don't think they like me very much, um, but uh, I, I think that's an embarrassment. We get a lot of their games in Britain because they're an East Coast team, so um, the time zone is slightly better and also there's the Manchester City link element there as well mm-hmm. and to have games at Yankee Stadium um, on TV I just think paints a terrible picture of MLS and it's it's not reflective of MLS as a whole we, you know that's the most frustrating thing if there were lots of grounds like that then you would go well maybe this is this is what it is but it's not like that so yeah sorry NYCFC it's nothing personal but uh, find a stadium quick the, the outfield field doesn't help but the fact that the camera is sometimes behind the sort of like baseball netting so that you almost oh, have netting terrible. in front it, it, at city it, field last year when they had yeah exactly that I, that was so embarrassing it that looks like you're so watching soccer in like a bad seafood restaurant and it makes me <laughs> confused i never know what to make of that um, but yeah. but in your season preview, uh, first off, I did want to note I, I am now uh, like I'm describing it as the Orlando pause. But that is uh, one of my favorite things is l- waiting for people to describe Orlando when you're like, yeah, I watch them. Uh, they've been not they've been disappointing. <laughs> like, there's always that like like one Mississippi pause that I enjoy. Uh, but it seems like maybe you find the Galaxy a bit more captivating. You had Pavona as the MVP. Galaxy is your eventual champions for this se- uh, season. Uh, why are you feeling so confident about them? And would you like to apologize to LAFC fans uh, before you hear from them? <laughs> yeah, well, I probably should apologize uh, uh, because uh, yeah, they're they're still good, <laughs> LAFC, and they're probably going to embarrass me by just <laughs> steamrolling their way to, to MLS Cup, and then they'll never let me live it down. But yes, um, I think the LA Galaxy. I'm I'm intrigued by them because look, Zlatan was was great. In MLS, the numbers speak for themselves, but it, it did kind of feel like the Galaxy were purely playing to his strengths. And, and as, as a team, they they weren't really a team that were that were built to his strengths, you know. And and so I think there there's a good chance they'll become a more rounded team this season. I think Pavon, um, he's had six months in the league now. He had a he's had a decent start, but now it's really starting to feel like he's he's becoming the main man. In that team, I know uh, Chicharito was obviously the headline signing, but in terms of the headline act in that team, I think Pavon, he's really looking like their biggest difference maker. His goal against Houston at the weekend was 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 incredible. Um, I think we'll see a few more like that over the course of the season. Obviously, the defence is, is still a bit of an issue with the Galaxy, but as as I've said to you previously in this discussion, you know, in, in, in MLS, it's, it's attack that's 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 king, and um, I think Chicharito, if 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 he can if he can keep his fitness and and he can find a bit of form. I don't think he's going to chart the numbers 
that certainly that Zlatan charted even you know I, I think he, he if he gets to 20 goals for a season I think that's going to be an exceptional season for him but I think bringing him in and he, him playing a slightly more involved and deeper role with Pavon there I, I think the Galaxy are going to become a, a, a better all-round team so as always with MLS it's very difficult to predict seasons um, but I, I think the Galaxy are going to have a good year. Uh, final question, because I feel like I've taken up uh, way too much of your time already, but I did want to ask you about uh, the article you wrote about exciting up-and-coming uh, English managers. Uh, any names in particular uh, folks might want to pay attention to? And I'll link to that article in the show notes if they want to give it a read as well. Well, I mean, at the moment, the the, the name at the top of that list in, in that article that I did was Joy Barton. Mm-hmm. Um, and regardless yeah. of your personal opinions on Joy Barton, I know I have a few but looking at it purely from a footballing perspective, he's doing a very good job at Fleetwood Town at the moment. They're on a real run and and, and they could win promotion um, to the championship. I mean, they're up into the playoff positions now. They're, they're, they're within um, striking distance of the promo- of the automatic promotion places as well. So I think I think Joey Barton um, is one worth watching. Um, I mean, some other names on that list, that Russell Martin, the former uh, Norwich City, Manager, he he's he's had a decent start at MK Dons. He came into a difficult um, position there, and 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 is is doing a, a good job. Michael Duff at, at Cheltenham, as well. Uh, Ryan Lowe at, at Plymouth Argyle. Um, so the, the, there are a number of of young managers in the lower leagues, and and the problem for them is that they they don't often get a chance at, at Premier League level. I mean, we saw Graham Potter go into a, a, a Brighton this season and that was a bit of an anomaly. It's been a while since our Premier League team has gone down to the Championship to, to, to hire a manager. But the point I'm coming to here is Championship clubs do look down the, the leagues to get to hire their manager. So a few of these a few of these guys, you know, if they, if they do well in League One or even League Two, they, they could be in the Championship, you know, by next season. So, um yeah, a number of, of, of guys that I think uh, really make English coaching. It's got a bright future, I think, English coaching at the moment. And if you were putting a bet on it, would it be Joey Barton going to the championship? I, th- I think so, to be honest. I think his I think his name, I mean, look, Joey Barton, we all know without going into it, the baggage that, that he comes with. But but he he has a name and he's doing a good job at the moment and that and that is a, a potent combination that a, a club chairman will find difficult to to turn down. The thing is, Fleetwood Town have a bit of money and and actually I think they might be able to keep hold of him. So he might be in the championship. I predict he will be in the championship before too long. But it might be with Fleetwood Town. So uh, listeners can put a wager on that one. I would advise Joey Barton not to do that. But Graham Ruthven, thank you very much for taking uh, time to talk about uh, Classico, talk MLS, talk a little bit uh, English managers. Uh, It is always very much appreciated. Thank you very much, Taylor. It's always good fun.